0: Hi, this is Silesh Rao from Climate Healers, and I am with
1: flow Vegans. And welcome back to another episode of the flow Vegans podcast. I'm your host and founder of SoFlow Vegans, Sean Russell. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Silesh Rao, environmentalist, animal rights activist, and founder of Climate Healers. In this episode, we discuss the Prevent Year Zero campaign, Dr. Rao's background as an engineer and how it helped his work. We look at his groundbreaking white paper on animal agriculture being the leading cause of climate change, as well as looking at the role of compassion and how it plays a major role in the work we do for others and ourselves. We'd like to take a moment and thank our supporters, whether it's leaving a comment on our website sharing or liking our content on any of our social media channels your support keeps us going we would like to invite you to check out our patreon channel and start showing your support at just two dollars a month a major shout out to miami vegans for being one of our first supporters so go to patreon.com slash vegans to see what we have cooking so, with that being said, enjoy our conversation with Dr. Silesh Rao on the SoFlow Vegans podcast. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans podcast. And welcome back to another episode of the SoFlow Vegans podcast. I am your host and founder of SoFlow Vegans, Sean Russell. And on today's episode, we have none other than Dr. Silesh Rao. On our episode. Thank you so much for joining us. My
0: pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Now, your name has come up so many times in our podcast from people that we worked with across the country, the work that you're doing, you know, on behalf of the planet. And every living being is much appreciated. It's a voice that we can't even get enough of. We need more voices out there advocating for the animals. And to have you on this program to talk about one of the pillars, you know, one of the three main pillars of the vegan movement, the environment. Because without the environment, we know we have nothing. You know, I this is an opportunity for our audience to learn directly from a leading voice in this movement. So Jumping right into it, can you tell us, a, give us a little bit of your background and in the work that you do?
0: Okay. I'm a systems uh, specialist. I am I, an engineer. I was trained in electrical engineering at uh, Stanford. And then once I graduated, I started working on the internet, um, the backbone uh, hardware for the internet. And... <clears throat> One of the things that happens uh, when you're trained as an engineer is that you have to cut through and figure out the truth in science. Because otherwise, you're not. whatever you build will not work. So um, we know that science is uh, sometimes twisted to suit um, the funders' interests. So you have to figure out what is the true science behind something. So I started working on the environment in 2006. Uh, Once I saw uh, a presentation by Al Gore, and I was shocked. I said, if half of what he's saying is true, I'm wasting my time trying to make things run faster on the internet, you know? Mm -hmm. So I told my wife that, and I said, I want to work on this full time. And she said, okay, if that's what you want to do, go for it. So that's how it started. And then a year later, I started Climate Healers. Um, where we are looking at how to solve climate change. How do you reverse climate change? Because it's not okay, you know, when the Earth has a fever to say, yeah, let's make sure the fever doesn't go over one and a half degrees Celsius. No, you need to bring it down. So I said, okay, what what can we do to reverse this? And I started looking at it from a systems perspective, and I began to see that uh, the science that is being done on climate change is slanted by the um, fundamental assumption that the American way of life is Mm non-negotiable, right? So if you begin with that assumption, the American way of life is non-negotiable, a consumer economy has to be promoted, then you start slanting the science to suit that. And I began to see signs of that happening. And I couldn't get, I'll go to talk about animal agriculture, because it's even though it is one of the leading causes of climate change, and everyone agrees that it is one of the leading causes of climate change, it is one of the leading causes of it is the leading cause of desertification, of deforestation, of all kinds of other environmental issues. But only when it comes to climate change, they don't talk about it, mm-hmm. right? So I began to look into it and uh, study it more, and um, and I realized it is the leading cause. It's not just one of the leading. It is the leading cause of climate change our entire way of life is causing climate change. So it's literally as if you know our house is on fire and uh, uh, when you stop throwing fuel on the fire, mm-hmm. that's veganism, okay? And when you ask your fellow residents to stop throwing fuel on the fire, that's vegan advocacy. So it's as simple as that. We have to stop throwing fuel on the fire before you can put out the fire and then we have to rebuild our home. So there's a lot of work to be done beyond going vegan, but veganism is the first step. So it's, it's literally, you know, you have to create this new system of normalized non-violence and, um, and actually implement uh, Dr. King's dream, mm. right? And we have to implement his dream. This is, nature is telling us, you can't wait any longer, you have to implement the dream, you know? And, um, uh, not only is providing you know assure equality for for all people regardless of color race whatever but also assure that you're going to treat animals with respect in all life with respect and that's what's being called for and that's
1: what nature is telling us to do so one of the things you said is that animal agriculture is one of the le- is the leading cause for climate change so right, right now the understanding from the research and what's being put out there, even from the vegan, some people within the vegan community is that it's the, it's the use of fossil fuels. It's that's the leading cause of the carbon that's, right. um, you know, the, what's being released from that. So can you right. explain, you know, and I, I, the white paper that you put out was the main reason why I got you on this podcast, because after I read it, it was like, everything is is cleanly laid out. You have the facts, you have the figures. It's not anecdotal. It's, you know, you go through it and you, you, you come out with, okay, this makes sense and how you're describing it. So one of the big takeaways from it was how methane, uh, methane's relation to to what's being emitted into the atmosphere, how that changes right. over time, and eventually becomes what we now are calling, you know, the number one contributor to to climate change. So, can you go into that part of of um? Right. Yeah. So, um, fossil fuels are
0: the leading source of of carbon dioxide that we are emitting into the atmosphere. But animal agriculture is the leading source of not emitting CO2. Meaning, if you didn't have animal agriculture, you can start sucking down the CO2 that's in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And you can start sucking down a huge amount because 37% of the land area of the planet is used just to graze animals. Graze our animals, not wild animals, right? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And that grazing land, every year we are burning down the grazing land to make sure that only grass grows. And nothing else grows on it, so in effect, we are preventing so much CO two from being sequestered on land by uh, promoting animal agriculture. So I said we need to count that. Mm-hmm. You know that is the opportunity cost of animal agriculture. So what I mean by that is, if uh, we continue doing what we are doing, we are emitting a certain amount of CO two and methane from animal agriculture. But if we all go vegan and we have a vegan world you'll start sucking down so much CO2, okay? So that means that a vegan world will have negative CO2 emissions. And the current world has some positive CO2 emissions from food, right? Mm-hmm. So the difference between the two is larger than the contribution of fossil fuels. In fact, it's it dominates, okay? Because the difference between the two is 87% of the total. Mm. Oh, wow. And... Because so there is because there is a large negative component that you need to take into account that no one is doing at the moment, uh, but there was a paper in um, I think it was Nature magazine or Science magazine that uh, talked about that, and I have a reference in my um, in my white paper uh, by Searchinger, and they showed that uh, every person is avoiding you know about five tons of CO2 per year by going vegan. Mm. So in effect, the carbon opportunity cost of eating animals is five tons of CO2 per so, person.
1: So if people, you know, go adopt a plant, a global, you know, the pushes to a global plant-based um, lifestyle. Right. So if we do that, and let's say we're still, you know, using plastics, not the saying, advocating not using plastics. So you're saying if, only, if the only thing that a person does is... Adopt, a, go vegan, go adopt a plant-based lifestyle. That we could see a reversal of what we're what we're currently experiencing, or what we are about to, um, you know, face, and we'll get into that in a little bit.
0: Right. Yeah, we'll see. See if, if the if everything else stays the same and we all go vegan, you will see a reversal. You will see uh, forests coming back because so much land gets re- returned back to nature. Right now, you have to understand that the land stores three times as much carbon as the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And on land, we have been chopping down forests like crazy. right? Only half the trees remain that used to be there. So if you bring back the forest that we have chopped down, you can suck down the CO2 that's in the atmosphere because every tree uh, stores carbon, and half the weight of a tree is carbon that used to be in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't take it from the soil, it takes it straight from the atmosphere. So, uh, you can literally reverse climate change by bringing back the forest, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, what happens when everyone goes vegan is that the entire system of normalized violence that we are living in today has to change, has to transform, because we are forcing it to transform. By saying we are not gonna be violent to animals at all. If you're not gonna be violent to animals, how can you be violent to other people, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So, (laughs) it's like, it's a completely it's a it's a different way of living altogether as a species. We we now become a caretaker species as opposed to a predator species. Okay, when we do that. So we are forcing a change when we each take that step. This is exactly what Gandhi did in India. He in India he asked the people of India to change their clothes from British clothes to Kadi clothes made by Indians in India. Mm-hmm. Right? And by just doing that step. Uh, the Indians were able to bring down the largest industry in England at that time, the textile industry, and bankrupt it. Mm-hmm. And then the British government was on its knees begging to negotiate with the Indians. Okay? Mm-hmm. So it was a simple change that each Indian did that caused a massive change in the economic structure of the whole. And veganism is doing exactly the same thing. you know, By going vegan, people of the world, around the world are doing this together. We are forcing Burger King to offer impossible burgers. Uh, we are forcing all these fast food people, uh, companies to start offering vegan options. Why? Because in any group, it's the vegan who decides where the group goes to eat. And if you don't have a vegan option, no one's coming. The groups are no longer coming to those shops, mm-hmm. so for those restaurants. And so they are forced to offer it. And so we are forcing a change in the, in the overall um, system by going vegan, I mean right now there are only about what two, three percent of the people are vegan, mm-hmm. and even that is causing such a huge ripple effect, right? Mm-hmm. So you can imagine if in fifty percent of the people are vegan, we are going to completely transform the system. You can no longer have you know um, wars, endless wars, and um, you know shooting animals and things like that as normal, right? Mm-hmm. It'll become abnormal, and so it will then cause a conversation between us to decide how are we going to organize ourselves as a species where we don't we are not violent to other beings anymore that's a different way of organizing ourselves
1: so um, with so the goal is to have everyone switch over to veganism like now to some people that may seem like a ambitious goal for everyone mm-hmm. to go vegan and then hearing that it has to be everyone then it's like, okay, this is not gonna happen, so why even try? Why even be an advocate, even if I am right. vegan? So is there a uh, a percentage, or is there, does it have to be everyone? Like, because, like especially with, like I said, we're getting to it about the twenty twenty six. Right. What happens if everyone isn't vegan? You know, right. is, there, is there like a percentage that we can look at to say, okay, if we are there, we're at least gonna be in the right direction?
0: Yeah, so what happens is you know, in any uh, system transformation, any major transformation like this, uh, only, if only 3% or 3.5% of the people implement it and they firmly believe in it, okay, they cause the whole system to turn around. And uh, mm-hmm. when 10% of the people believe that this system, change, this system transformation is going to happen, then it happens. It will happen. So it's, uh, it's one of those psychological things that, um, because when 10% of the people have a very strong belief in something, and they actual, actualize it, mm-hmm. then the rest of the majority will come along, eventually. See, in any species, you have these uh, trailblazers, you know, that go out and try new things. And you have the conservatives that, uh, that stay, stick with what they know, mm-hmm. right? And you need both in any species. Because if the trailblazers are doing something silly, they can come back to where the conservatives are, So, mm-hmm. right? But when trailblazers find something that is a better way of living, and they stick with it, and they get 10% of the people to believe that, and they go over, then the rest will come along, eventually. So it's inevitable that transformation is going to happen. It's a little bit like even the internet, right? When we mm-hmm. started, When I started working on the internet, people told me, you're crazy. Who's gonna read stuff on the internet? Who's gonna buy things off the internet, you know? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is nuts, right? And I thought maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm, I'm spending my life trying to work on something that may not be used. But within seven years, mm-hmm. I overheard someone say, I cannot live without the internet, right? It was that fast from from saying it's, no one's gonna do this to everyone saying I wanna be there, I want that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's exact this is exactly what happens with um, the system transformation this is how it happens so I say every one of us is making a difference so imagine I think of it as a you know a dam a dam holding back this this water which is basically compassion right mm-hmm. You're holding back this compassion and we are all punching holes in that dam and you see little bits of Flow of water of compassion coming out. This is this is the vegan movement, and as more and more holes are punched, eventually the whole dam will burst and break, and then it'll become normal to be compassionate to all life.
1: So it's a movement of compassion, and this compassion extends to all living things, which all right. includes the earth. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that I think about when I hear talks about um, climate change and and you know, protecting the earth is the earth itself. And the fact that the earth is resilient in the sense that you compared it to a fever. Right. What I see it is we don't want the fever to get to the point where the earth removes the virus that is causing <laughs> it to feel sick, which would be the human race. So in reality, you know, if people want to look at self-interest, if they're so far removed from the earth, as silly as it may sound, you know, being an advocate for climate, you know, being addressing climate change is actually making sure that you have a place to live, that you, your family has a place to live. And another thing, too, even within the vegan community is, is that conversation of compassion? It's It's the compassion is for yourself as well mm-hmm. and understanding where you are having that inner dialogue of how you're being in the world because that shows and you know what what you see is is a reflection of what you're admitting um right. so, so do you do you see that conversation happening in the vegan space because you know as far as Yes, you could be an advocate. Yes, you could be compassionate to the animals and to the environment. But what about self-compassion?
0: Right. So we uh, we did a documentary called "A Prayer for Compassion," Mm -hmm. uh, where we talked to a lot of uh, religious leaders and um, uh, leaders of the world and asked them about you know compassion for animals and how is that part of our um, upbringing, our religion. And everyone agreed that you know compa- compassion for all life is the foundation of all religion. And it always begins with self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Because unless you're compassionate to yourself, you can never yeah. truly show compassion to others, right? Mm-hmm. So it always begins with that. The inner work um, is the foundation of, of all compassion. And I see veganism as an ethical stance as an ethical stance in which we are deciding how are we to live among others, right? Mm-hmm. And, and also, uh, when we tell the story of Earth as being some passive being, passive thing that we are acting on, simultaneously, you know, I, I think that comes from a position of um, hubris from mm. our perspective. The Earth is very resilient. She has been around for what, four and a half billion years and life has been on Earth for three billion years, and life has survived worse things than us, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and she created us, right? So uh, we cannot tell a story in which you know the evolution of an opposable thumb and a prefrontal cortex is a fatal flaw mm-hmm. in evolution that will kill itself, right? That's the kind of story we are telling now. Uh, whereas that's not the way uh, you know um, the kind of stories that I was brought up in the the stories that I was told is You're part of something much much larger okay, you are just a tool an instrument mm-hmm. and You have to do your job. You do your duty for the good of all and let go of the fruits of your action mm-hmm. because that doesn't belong to you it belongs to the whole so we have to have faith that we are part of something much, much larger, that's much more intelligent than we give it credit for, right? And so that's the story I tried to tell. Um, you know, at first, I, I said, okay, maybe uh, you know, when I started working on the environment, I, I got very depressed. I thought maybe everything I was taught was wrong and we are going to hell in a handbasket. You know, <laughs> that's exactly what we're doing. We're killing ourselves off. And, and then when my granddaughter was born, uh, she literally changed my life. She changed my perspective because I went to see her when she was a month old and I, was, I held her in my arms and she looked up at me and gave this smile mm-hmm. and I realized she belongs exactly as she is. Yeah. I mean, she is part of life, you know, and we are all part of this something much, much larger. And, and so I said, we have to find that story. Because we, t- we tell stories, and based on those stories, we determine how we act, right, as a species. This yeah. is how we coordinate you know, our actions among billions of us, because we buy into a common story. Uh, and then we play play a common game. In Right now, we're playing the game of money, right? Yeah. And so the story that we tell where we don't belong in nature is a story that's self-perpetuating, that sort of, you know... Once you tell that story, you, you really believe it, and then you start acting like it, right? But when you tell a story that you do belong in nature, and you belong exactly as you are, and as part of that, we are going to transform ourselves as if we're a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so we'll transform from a predator species to a caretaker species. And then when you uh, tell that story, people say, hey, yeah, I, I prefer that story. <laughs> To what is being told today, right? So I tried to find that story. And in that story, what we have been doing so far is we have been heating up the Earth. We've been heating up the Earth over the last 10,000 years, and we've done a great job of it. And we did that by burning down forests uh, and by having this killing machine kill things, right? So mm-hmm. we, we heated up the Earth and we kept the temperature constant for the first 10,000 years. And then over the last 200 years, we have increased it by one degree Celsius. And in the process, we have now understood what we did, so we have the science now to back up what we what I'm saying, mm-hmm. and and now we have to start cooling down the earth, okay? And we have to then maintain the temperature where it uh, at the at the thermostat setting, so we become like the thermostat species for the planet. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, we have the responsibility because we now know as a species we can change the climate. And once you know you have that power, you have the uh, ability to use that power for the good of all, Mm -hmm. right? So we can use that power for the good of all. So that requires us to change how we organize ourselves, right? Because uh, uh, what we did to heat up the earth is we created a system of normalized violence. Mm. What we have to do to cool the earth is to create a system of normalized nonviolence. So we literally have to implement Dr. King's dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a dream we've all, the dream of equality for all life is a dream that we've all had. You know, It's part of our constitution. Mm-hmm. We even say all men are created equal. And then we said, okay, men also means women. It also means children. <laughs> you know? And eventually men really means all beings. It's all beings are created equal. And so we now have to actually implement it. And can we not do that? Of course we can, right? Mm-hmm. So it's up to us to figure out how to organize ourselves and how to um, how to make decisions, how to make uh, how to lead our normal lives. So we need to lead a normal lives, and the planet must thrive. That is sustainability. If you lead your normal life and the planet dies, that's not sustainable, mm-hmm. right? So we know that. So the quest for sustainability is the quest for Dr. King's dream. To implement his dream.
1: To actually do what we say. Mm. You know? One of the things that I come across um, on a daily basis is in, in relation to compassion, is in how I respond. You know, Posting these videos, the podcast, the articles, you'll get the occasional, I'm sure you dealt with this plenty of times get the occasional response you know what about bacon or any milk or whatever whatever the quick funny try to be funny remark is and i find myself in practicing compassion not being quick to respond Mm -hmm. you know you know responding with a thank you or responding with a like Mm -hmm. and that usually diffuses what's going on. But at the same time, I want to be mindful of not being a passive voice. So I use my communication as my advocacy, my communication of having these interviews, showing what's happening, showing the activists, showing the advancements in the food industry. What are some ways that people can practice compassion at the same time, not practice pra- passive, um, being passive in their advocacy? Right. Right. I think, uh, you know, in, in a way, we have, uh, we
0: have no choice but to be active in this. Um, because just by being vegan, you are uh, exemplifying compassion. Just by, by um, eating publicly or, you know, just uh, kind of work that you're doing, you know, communicating with people, uh, you are exemplifying this new way of living, And when you thrive like that and you show that you're happy and you show that you are joyful, you are telling others, look, there is a better way to live. So this is literally like the trailblazers of the species going out to another pasture and saying, look, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is actually, uh, there's more here, it's much better here. So come on over. And then of course, there are some who, who stick to what they know who are gonna say, no, 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 I don't wanna come, you know? Mm -hmm. And I say, uh, we are addressing the people on the wall, people who are on the fence. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And we are helping the people on the fence to come over. We are not really addressing the people who are far away behind the fence, who may be screaming, saying, no, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. Because they'll eventually come closer and closer to the fence. Okay. But first, you have to get the people on the fence to move over. And that's the way movements grow, you know? So I say uh, that's uh, where advocacy should be focused on, uh, on helping people come over to our side and and then working out the institutions, the infrastructure, the new constitution, the new currency that you need for a completely vegan world, right? So... Mm -hmm we need to we need to create that and just like I, we did for the internet we need to create all of this and then give it away mm. and that's exactly what we are trying to do in the vegan world 2026 project so we are working on these things and then we are going to publish white papers we are going to just give it away and um, people want to adopt it they can adopt it you know if they don't want to adopt it fine uh, and what happened in the internet world is people adopted it you know, so that's what we were doing as the standards body. We were just giving away our ideas. How do you connect things? How do you make things run faster, and so on? Mm-hmm. Because what we found when we started working on the internet was there was a chaos. There was lots of people working on different aspects, and they were not talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And and uh, they, this product would not work with that product, you know. So and people were finding all kinds of trouble, and so they the internet was was sort of stagnating because of the lack of standards. And um, so so this is exactly what we're trying to do in the Vegan World 2026 project also. You know, we're saying we're gonna work out um, every aspect of what a vegan world should be and then we're going to give it away. And people can argue about it, we can talk about it, and then we can say we want to improve that. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But first step is to have a version 1.0 given away to mm-hmm. people, right? And then we are going to write apps based on that. We're going to, you know, give away those apps help so that help, uh, so that we can help people try it out.
1: Try out veganism.
0: Not veganism alone. Veganism, we can do that today, right? Mm-hmm. But beyond veganism, so right now, when people go vegan, we are persuading corporations to offer us vegan food, okay? Mm-hmm. So the next thing we need to do is to start making them offer us uh, uh, less plastic, you know, less uh, cruel products for everything. Not just, not just uh, vegan products, but that uses less slave labor. You know, I mean, it. You have to go beyond mm. just the animals and then start looking at social justice issues as well, and encapsulate that in this app, so that we are measuring the true cost of everything.
1: Oh, okay. So it's showing a more I, more of a holistic view of what what this movement could do for every living being, regardless exactly. of who you are. Right. Exactly. Nice. So that we start then, you know, putting
0: more effort into things that uh, regenerate the planet, because right now, by uh, with money, we are being we are being driven to do things that are destroying the planet. Okay, that's the game of money we are playing right now, right? So we need to change that game, and and so how do you transform the game? You tra- You cannot transform the game by saying, you know, here is a new game that's completely separate from the old game, and invite them to play the game. No, you have to create a game that works with the old game. It's backward compatible with the old game, and but as you play this new game in parallel with the old game. Eventually, you say, "I think I prefer to play this game alone." Eventually, right? Mm-hmm. But they do coexist. So they do coexist for a while uh, until this the old game of money becomes irrelevant.
1: Mm. And you mentioned the shift three percent leading to yeah. the ten percent, leading to that se- seismic shift and right. creating that paradigm in everyone how they, you know, see animals. We we're about at the two percent right now, mm-hmm. globally. So, what does the twenty twenty six project like? What are some of the things that you have implemented now? I know you went over a little bit of it, but what are some of those things that are get people hopeful listening or watching this that we are going towards that three percent?
0: Well, yeah. So, in the twenty twenty six project, uh, we have uh, created study groups and uh, task forces. So a study group is where we really don't know the solution yet, and we are studying, you know, looking at various options that are out there and trying to figure out what our recommendation should be. A task force is a study group that, has, that is now implementing a recommendation. It's coming up with a recommendation and is going to implement it. And so uh, we have about 25 different study groups and task forces on the project, and we are from all over the world. And we meet on, um, online, you know, once a week or once every two weeks. So each study group determines how, how often they meet. And then we have a, a collective group that meets uh, once a month. And basically, these study groups report into it, right? Mm-hmm. So we have created a process by which we can come up with recommendations and um, implement them uh, worldwide, Right, mm-hmm. And so then we have these local groups, so we have formed these local groups, climate healers groups, that would then uh, actually go and implement the, the recommendations eventually. So right now the local groups are basically disseminating the, uh, the white paper. They are showing our documentaries. Uh, we did a documentary called Cowspiracy, and then we did What the Hell. and then we did uh, Prayer for Compassion, and we did one called um, um, The Human Experiment. So that, sh- that shows what is wrong with the current system. So, so once you eliminate what's wrong with the current system, you have to show a new system. You have to work on a new system that uh, inspires people, and that's uh, what we're doing in the project. Right. Mm. Um, so I, you know, we have a website called ClimateHealers.org, and anyone who comes to the website, you can you'll see a, a pop-up that will ask you if you want to take a survey. And if you take that survey, then you get on Basecamp and you choose which study group you want to work on. and you know, Or you can even propose a new one that you want to work on. So, uh, that's this is how we are organizing it. Um, because we feel that the people who are on the internet should be the first to take the step of, um, because we have a choice. We, we are the ones who will have a choice about whether to eat, to go vegan or not, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people who don't
1: have a choice, and I don't want to go force them to change something. Mm-hmm. So what role? My, my approach is community, you right. know, building these communities, supporting communities within communities, and bringing people together to create a sustainable lifestyle. You know, Not just right. saying, go vegan, and then they're struggling trying to figure out where to go, where to even find climate healers. So what role has the development of communities played in Climate Healers and the projects you're, you're leading?
0: It's central to it. Um, basically, this is all, uh, every group is a, is a local community. And what we do online is a global community where we coordinate the actions of these local groups and uh, under study groups. So it is all about community. It's about uh, having a conversation Between people in the community as to how are we going to um, organize ourselves in a non-violent system. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the core of it. We have identified seven core shifts, and and it's about you know making sure that everything we do fits within those seven core shifts. And um, and how do you? So there are people who are um, active in uh, you know helping uh, local. I mean, showing movies locally, uh, talking to people locally, helping them with uh, with the cooking classes and things like that. So,
1: every aspect of it is um, uh, involves community. And you mentioned you briefly mentioned, but there were some there were some big things that you just dropped on us not too long ago. As far as the documentaries you you helped you know put out, so tell us a little bit about that because I know a lot of people listening to this right now became vegan because they watched Cowspiracy, they watched What the hell? they watched these documentaries that you you played a role in. So explain your involvement with these films.
0: Yeah, so the first documentary that I got involved in was uh, The Human Experiment, and that talks about the chemical pollution of the planet. And um, so I consider that to be the first in the trilogy that, that I got involved in, um, uh, because I had written a book in 2011 or carbon dharma, and uh, and I thought people would read the book, and you know they'll say, "Aha, we'll have to change," and so on. <laughs> but <laughs> I got maybe a thousand people to read the book, right? So it wasn't. It, then I realized that that we are in a different era. It's no longer driven by books. It's driven by movies, you know, movies and documentaries. So we, uh, so I got involved in the that documentary, and in the meantime, I was trying to get Al Gore and to talk about animal agriculture, and I couldn't get him to do it. Mm. You know so then when uh, kip and keegan did conspiracy and they were looking for funding and i saw their clip and i said oh my god this is exactly what i've been trying to do i've been trying to get algo to do so i contacted them and i said how can i how can i help you out and so i got involved as a, um, a co-executive producer mm-hmm. i helped them with uh, defending their numbers you know because um, people who wanted to um, become part of the movie they wanted them to take out certain things in the documentary, mm-hmm. like the 51% figure from Goodland and Annam. and I said, "No, it's not only is it true; it, I think it's much more than that." So, and so we stuck to our guns, and I showed them why they should they, they should keep it. So this is how I got involved in conspiracy. And then when conspiracy really became big well, after it went on Netflix, um, then I saw you know that, I mean, what the hell? There was a no brainer that we had to do that. And uh, so because you have to look at the health, the environment, the animals, and love. Mm-hmm. I call that the H-E-A-L, HEAL. You know? Health, environments, animals, and love. Mm-hmm. Love is uh, a movie called A Prayer for Compassion, which is looking at it from every religious angle. Because ultimately, to me, love is the only thing that's sustainable. Mm-hmm. Right, Hate is not sustainable. Yeah.
1: So... Let's go back into the, to the white paper a little bit. Mm. So one of the big things, the organizations that are supporting ways that we can combat or address, rather, climate change. The United Nations is one of the leading authorities right now when it comes to the research that's coming out, the FAO. Can you go into some of the disparities in the reporting and how they're portraying animal agriculture's role in climate change. We touched on it a little bit, but I want to go more into, more in depth.
0: Right, yeah, so uh, see, I I had an experience back in the 90s. Um, uh, I bought a brand new car, and that car the next morning burned my house down, Mm -hmm. okay? So, and it had a problem. And the car company knew about the problem, but they were waiting for 10 cars to burn before they solved the problem. Ooh. that was their headquarters had this rule, you know, that, um, that it's not a serious issue until so many cars burn, right? So they told me that mine was the eighth car that caught fire, And right? because I spoke to the engineer who was looking at the problem mm-hmm. within the company. And he told me, it's, yours is the eighth car that caught fire, Headquarters is waiting for ten before they issue a recall. Um, so meanwhile, you know, we are just counting you as eight, number eight. And then he explained to me how it happened. You know, and I, as an engineer, I understand that not everything you everything you build will have some bug or the other. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's no such thing as a bug-free design, right? We just need to make sure that any bug that remains in the product doesn't cause things like fires. Yes, because <laughs> <laughs> that's a major issue, right? <laughs> Uh, so, anyway, I thought it's my bad luck, but what I found uh, after that was, uh, very edu- it educated me as to how things work in the current system, because the company sent an expert to examine the fire, and that expert was an academic. He was a professor of physics from a very reputed university, and I noticed that he was not even looking at the car. He was looking at everything else mm. in my house. And I asked him, why are you looking at all these other things? And I spoke to the engineer. And he said, Oh my God, who told you, who gave you the engineer's number? You know? You you you're not supposed to talk to him. How can I do my job if you are talking to him? Because his job was to find an alternate explanation for the fire. Mm. And so his job was not to indict the company, it was to find something else that could be the wrong so this way the company can uh, claim no responsibility for what has happened until 10 cars have caught fire mm-hmm. in their local, in their uh, assessment. And then they will say, yeah, we have an issue and therefore, you know, this is what we need to do. Right? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, all of these fires that happened, it's not their fault. That's exactly mm-hmm. how the UN is dealing with climate change. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, you know, talk about climate change, but don't ever indict the consumer economy, right? Don't ever indict uh, our way of living. Find something else. Find something that looks like it's just, you know, how you source the energy. That's the problem. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: If you just source the energy with solar energy instead of fossil fuels, you could continue living the way we are living. That is the kind of story they want to tell. But that's not the truth. Okay? So we have to, as if you really want to solve the problem, you have to find the truth and you have to solve it uh, holistically.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. It is our way of life that's being indicted in climate change, it is our uh, inequality that's being indicted. You know? And maybe the powers that be are waiting for you know, so many people to die off, or so many animals to die off before they start telling us the truth. I don't know what is going on. Mm -hmm. But what is going on is not right. So I'm saying, okay, we have to start telling the truth about what's going on. Now, I had been doing my own research, and I had come to the conclusion that and Anand's report was correct, and that it's even worse than what they were saying, because they had written in 2009, that 51% of all the greenhouse gases comes from animal agriculture.
1: Mm.
0: Back in 2009, they had said that. Mm-hmm. And uh, these, these were two scientists from the from the World Bank, and they were environmental assessment specialists. And the scientists who were on the other side saying it's 18% or 14%, whatever, they were agro-economists. They were really not climate scientists. Mm-hmm. They worked for the UNFAO. And if you look at their employment, Uh, Record, you will see that they are really um, employed by the animal agriculture industry, okay? Mm -hmm. So we are getting numbers from the industry on the other side, and the UN is saying that's correct. I'm saying, you know, (laughs) that cannot be correct (laughs) because the industry has an ax to grind, you know? It's gonna be biased. So the science that comes out of biased sources should not be accepted. The science has to begin with an unbiased view, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's a lot of bias signs out there. So you have to sift through it to see what is really true. And only then can you build something that works. Only then can you uh, create something that's lasting, that's sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. So as an engineer, I'm trained to look for that. And so I saw that and I said, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not going I'm, to, I'm just going to ignore that and I'm going to concentrate on animal agriculture. So I started working on just telling people about veganism and so on. But the white paper came about because uh, Jane Willis Mitchell came to me and she said, you keep, doing, you keep talking about veganism and why we, we have to do, go vegan for the environment. Can you just write down why you do that? Can mm-hmm. you just write a white paper as to uh, what is the real cause of climate change? I said, okay, I mean I'll put down what I know. And that's how the white paper came about. And I wasn't. I mean, I was surprised when it uh, when it got the attention of so many people, uh, because I thought it would be common among people who who are in the know. Mm-hmm. They all know. But I didn't realize not,
1: not many people know. You know. So. No. The the like like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I I was doing so. This is this was my process. I. I have a show called Soulful Vegans Experience, where we put out news clips every day. Then we had the Australian Fire, so I wanted to do a piece on that. But then everyone was doing a piece on that, so I wanted to get to the root cause of it. So I started doing research on climate change, doing Google searches, you know, saw everything that the UN put out, um, You know, a lot of big websites, what have you. Then I came across your paper and read like the first, you know, maybe one 10th uh, you know, of it, and I was like, oh, this is different. And it kind of aligns with some of the things I've heard, you know, documentaries, what have you, read through the entire thing. And it was the first time that I actually saw the facts and figures, you know, that broke down why we're saying this. And and I think that that's so powerful because not everyone's going to read it. Not everyone's going to want to know that the minutia of why. But then the few that have the ability to communicate that message. Are the ones that are going to be able to read it and distill the information break it down use their skills like my intention is to you know isolate individual subjects within it and put it in such a way that anybody can look at it and say oh i want more information here's a link to the full white page and then but but rather than just doing that on an island i wanted to have you on the podcast and just be able to have a conversation with you about this because it's not often that you're able – that's one of the wonderful things about podcasts, to be able to have this audience with you to ask you the questions that maybe weren't – that I didn't see in there. You know, find out right. about your background. And this leads me to the next point of address some of the criticism that may be out there. And I haven't really seen a lot of the criticism other than, oh, you know, the you know, the jokes that people put in the comment sections – but what would you say that to people that your the stance that you know we're both taking right now in terms that animal agriculture is the leading cause of climate change is biased? It's 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 yeah it's biased. There's no other way for me to say it. Like what are what's your response to that?
0: Yeah, um, my response is first of all, I mean the criticisms I've heard about the white paper is first of all I'm not a climate scientist. I'm an engineer, and I say yes, that's true. I am an engineer um, I'm an electrical engineer, but as an engineer, I'm trained to look for truth in science, and that's what I was trying to do i'm not paid by anybody I'm just doing it on my own. you know mm-hmm. in fact, for the last uh, twelve years that I've run climate healers, I really haven't really solicited money from anyone. you know There is a donate button that's hidden in my website, so if they want to do it, they can do it, but otherwise, I'm not looking for money right now. I'm not looking for anyone to influence my work. I want to be independent. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, That's was very important to me. Um, second criticism I get is that it is not peer-reviewed. It's not peer-reviewed science, whereas the other stuff is peer-reviewed. I said, you know, it depends on who your peers are, right, number one. But number two, it's a white paper. A white paper is uh, a paper that an organization writes to show why they do what they do. Mm -hmm. That's what I did. In fact, I defined the white paper in the beginning. So this is why I'm writing it. It's not meant to go get approval from anyone. Mm -hmm. This is why we do what we do. And and I'm using every source in that white paper. I've given you the reference to it. And I'm using data from that source. And all of those sources are peer-reviewed. Okay. Okay? So it's a compilation of peer-reviewed data and I'm just showing you how to interpret that data. So it's up to each one of us to decide whether I'm interpreting it correctly or not, okay? Um, and uh, the third uh, criticism I get, I mean, these are the two main ones. So the third one, you know, uh, is, How can can all these scientists Mm -hmm. look at this and come up with exactly the wrong conclusion? Mm -hmm. How can the UN IPCC, which has 2000 scientists, come up with this wrong conclusion, right? And you are showing, you're taking the same data and you're coming up with this conclusion. How is that possible? Are you telling us that all these scientists are in on some conspiracy? And I'm saying, no, that's not how it happens. Every scientist is doing their job, okay, sincerely. And then the IPCC is a political organization. It's an intergovernmental panel on climate change. Okay, If you look at their process by which they come up with uh, their recommendations, you will see it's a very political process because all the nations have to agree Mm -hmm. on what is written in the IPCC report. And so, for instance, I use, uh, I mean, I have a couple of webinars that I've done on the white paper where I go into details on each section. And in the second webinar, I showed, you know, the way the IPCC does, for instance, modeling, how to, do, how to put out the model for, say, CO2 and how CO2 um, uh, behaves in the atmosphere. They take, they ask people, they ask scientists, show us the results from your model. Okay, mm-hmm. so they got like fifteen different model results, and they are all over the place. The model results are all over the place. As an engineer, if I were building something based on these models, I would tell these fifteen people get together in a room and figure out who's correct, mm. because I'm building something real, you know, with this. So I need to know what is true.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Instead, what the IPCC does is takes an average of all the models.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, they're soliciting from 15 different sources. Who knows how many of those sources were all, you know, from the same model, right? Mm -hmm. People just copied a model, just tweaked a bit, and then they gave it to you. So there is a lot of bias built into the process. Okay? Mm -hmm. And then you look at the model itself, and you say it doesn't even correspond to physics, the way physics works. So when you pump up CO2 into the atmosphere, it doesn't come down as the sum of exponentials. It'll come down as a product of three exponentials. We know that too. Mm-hmm. So I even show how it will work. You know, we put out CO2 into the atmosphere, and let's say the ocean wants to absorb it first, fast. Mm-hmm. It's going to absorb it the fastest. Then the ocean and the atmosphere will reach a balance first. It's like you know, you put a big bucket, and you're connecting it to a smaller bucket with a big hose. Mm-hmm. The two are going to level up first, right? Yeah. And then the third bucket will start leveling up because the third bucket has a very tiny hole that connects it to the first two buckets, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how physics would work, but that's not how the IPCC models it. And so those are all things I point out as, uh, as to how a political process can distort the science.
1: Okay. And um, so, it's f- so out of all of the, the criticisms you've mentioned, None of them were really attacking the data it's, yeah. it's it's more about looking almost like the uh, examiner going into the garage exactly t- looking for everything else except the information that you're putting out because they can't they can't really refute it right yeah so that's 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 interesting to hear um what I do want to know is you know less living in South Florida um this is this really hits home. And especially with um, sea level rise, so what are some of the things that people can look forward not, not look forward to, but could expect to happen in twenty twenty six? So, this is a number we've said multiple times in this podcast. So what is right, significant yeah. about twenty twenty six
0: What is significant about twenty twenty six was uh, I did a calculation back in two thousand and sixteen that at the rate at which we are killing wild vertebrates, wild animals, we are on track to almost wipe them out by 2026 if we continued killing the way we were killing them. And um, so when I did that calculation, basically it's an exponential process, right? So there's a process by which you know, as the economy grows, we're killing more and more animals mm-hmm. because we have to feed the economy with these animals, the bodies of these animals. And so, uh, when I did that calculation I realized that I we have to create something on the other side to pull us away from this abyss that we are going to get into mm-hmm. because if we kill all the wild animals we are going to be dead too mm-hmm. right so I said no th- that means that we have to create a, a, um, a project or a, an impetus for a completely vegan world by 2026 that's mm-hmm. like you know, people will say, oh, that's crazy. You're looking for a completely vegan world by 2026? It's never going to happen. But you may know that's never going to happen, but that's our goal. Mm. And if we use that as a goal and we pull people along, we are going to stop us from killing off all the wild animals by 2026. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's the idea. is You have to create a big pull on the other side. Okay. And you have to put a date for it so that people get inspired by the date. And then they think about the date, and they ask you, why did you come up with that date? And then I can explain to them that we are on track to wipe out all the wild animals if we keep doing what we're doing. You know, yeah. And so that brings that into focus. So this is why we started it with the, with the Prevent Year Zero you know, campaign.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we had a video saying, we have to prevent this year zero from happening, where we are on track to wipe out all the wild animals. Because just like we killed, all, we killed all the wild animals with the fires, mm-hmm. you know, we've been killing animals in the Amazon for growing more cattle. And we shoot animals when they come near our livestock. So, I mean, there's a whole campaign. There's a killing machine at play. And in the ocean, we are using satellite technologies to find the last remaining fish and catch them. Wow. Okay so that's like there is a killing machine that we have launched and that we have that has been uh, operational for 10000 years and that's sort of invisible to us
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that's supplying us with all the products that we are consuming right mm-hmm. and that killing machine has to be halted we know that otherwise the killing machine is not sustainable right mm-hmm. so if you talk about sustainability sustainability is non violence is sustainable violence is not sustainable Killing like that is not sustainable. So we know you have to halt that, but people are distracting us from looking at the killing machine. They are showing us the burning machine. That's the main problem. Meaning the burning machine is the main problem, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you can just, instead of burning, if you could just collect solar energy, you'll be fine, right? Mm -hmm. Don't look at the killing machine. And I'm saying, no, this is why I'm trying to put the light on the killing machine. This is why we did the 2026 project. So this way people ask you, what is
1: 2026? (laughs) They get into it, you know? So so you started in 2016? 2016 is when I did the calculations,
0: and then I was reading a story to my granddaughter in bed, and at the end of the story she asked me, Grandpa, who were the first human beings? Mm -hmm. And I have promised her that I'll never ever lie to her. So I tried to explain to her about evolution, I said, imagine that you're standing on the street and you're holding your mom by your hand. And you ask your mom to bring her mom to stand by her side and you create a long line of mothers on this side of the street. And on the other side of the street, you ask a chimpanzee to do the same thing with her mother and her grandmother and so on. I said, by the time these two lines go from Phoenix to Tucson, there'll be only one single line Mm -hmm. because both lines are going to merge. So immediately she sat up in bed, she said, what? are you telling me that animals are my family? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, now that he put it that way, they are your family. She said, then, then, then why are people eating my family? Ooh. Grandpa, make them stop. They're eating my family. And she was six years old. And she was bawling her eyes out. And I told her, Kimaya, this is what I do. This is my job. My job is to make them stop. She said, this is your job? You know you haven't done your job? When are you going to do your job? <laughs> and I said, I have to do it by 2026. Otherwise, we are all in big trouble. Mm-hmm. Because that number was in my head at that time. She said, promise? Will you promise me that the world will be vegan by 2026? Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I'll promise you that. Will you give me a pinky promise? I said, sure, I'll give you a pinky promise. And she said, you can never, ever break a pinky promise. Mm-hmm. And then she went to sleep. That's how the project started. Okay. I see it as a promise from my generation to her generation saying that we are going to sort this out before we leave this planet. And I determined to do it.
1: Woo. (laughs) Yeah. I'm definitely going to be sharing that clip a lot. Um, Wow. Wow. So it was a start as a promise to your, it has so many layers. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're going to start wrapping up, but I do want to leave with what can we do to support? I mean, this is this is directed towards, this is actually going to be directed towards vegans. Yeah. Now, what can, uh, so let's say we, we decided to go vegan, maybe it's our first week or first decade, what else can we do to Make this happen, 2026
0: happen. Right. Uh, I say, you know, please take the survey and join us on Basecamp. Basecamp is the software platform that we are using. And um, there are over 300 people now who are working on the Vegan World 2026 project. This is not a spectator sport, this is something that we all have to be involved in. And so, so a lot of people are giving their life for this now you know they are spending so much time on it i see them you know are constantly being on base camp and uh, organizing meetings you know advancing our knowledge about how to create a non vegan uh, how to create a completely vegan world because there are so many layers to it yeah, because we have created a world of violence and it has happened organically over the last 10,000 years. So uh, creating a world of nonviolence in which we live in a very nonviolent way is a very conscious act, okay? And that needs to happen within the next six years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you can imagine how many questions there are, right? Mm -hmm. As to how we do things. And all those questions have to be addressed in a cohesive way so that they work with each other. Um, so uh, that's a huge project. And so that's where I ask people to put their time and energy into. I'm also going to do a um, two and a half month tour of America and Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a road tour. I call it the Pinky Promise Tour. Mm-hmm. So my granddaughter is going to join me towards the end of the tour. And we are visiting you know, lots of cities. So the tour um, itinerary is being worked out. So it's going to start on April 18th and end in July. Um, and uh, uh, my goal there is to go and talk to people about this Vegan World 2026 project, about base camp, and get them to join and to form climate healers groups in their area. So I'm basically addressing vegans, you know, uh, showing vegans that they're part of something much, much larger than they thought, that it is, uh, it is a movement that is going to happen You know, we are going to have a vegan world because I cannot break my
1: pinky promise. And I want to invite you to consider South Florida for one of your stops. Mm -hmm. SoFlow Vegans would love to work with you. We're going to be hosting a film festival. We haven't this this probably the first time anyone's ever heard that we're making this announcement. So we would love to have you speak, talk about what's going on. We'll do everything we can in our power to bring the community out to hear you live and in person, especially after, you know, being, you granting us this opportunity to speak to you on our podcast. We would love to have you in person in South Florida so we can address this together as a community. So we'll talk offline more about this, but I just wanted to make sure I, you know, put South Florida into running for your tour. Thank you. All right. So with that being said... Thank you so
0: much. I will tell my... Um, I was going to say, I'm just going to tell my... Because we have a a group of people who are working on the tour. I'll tell them to include South Florida in it.
1: Thank you for even considering us. we appreciate it. And um, like I said, if you need any more information, reach out to me and I'll send you some stuff. But with that being said... Any closing remarks, anything maybe we didn't touch on that you would love to share with our listeners and watchers?
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I would say one of the uh, the core guiding principles of uh, climate healers is that compassion for all life is infinitely sustainable. And this is about human liberation, animal liberation, earth liberation, all being achieved together. So, I call it Human Earth Animal Liberation. That's also a sp- heal.
1: And with that, thank you so much. And where can we find more information about everything that you're working on?
0: You can find it at climatehealers.org. So, it's uh, climatehealers with an S.org. And from there, the main project is veganworld2026.org and preventear0.org. Both of those are linked from Climate Healers. And the Climate Healers has a um, pop-up for the survey that we can do to join the Vegan World 2026 project. So thank you so much for including us in your podcast.
1: And and thank you so much for being on the show. And, of course, we'll have all the links that you need in our show notes on SoFloVegans.com slash podcast. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sean. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans podcast. We would like to thank Dr. Salish Rao again for agreeing to appear on our podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes in the weeks to come. We have podcast episodes featuring the team for Mastering Diabetes, Dr. Joel Kahn, and... A whole lot more ready for you to enjoy. Be sure to also visit our community page to learn about all the exciting deals we have from our multiple partners. So go to soflowvegans.com slash community for more exclusive deals. Even if you're not local to South Florida, you can take advantage of some of these discounts we've secured. So the list is always being updated, so go to soflowveganscom community for the most up-to-date information. Now, with that being said, we will see you next week for a new episode of the SoFlo Vegans Podcast. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast.